This podcast is a proud member of the That Moment In Podcast Network. Check out the network at thatmomentin.com. Another episode over at the Cinema Retail Podcast, which can be found at thatmomentin.com. I am your host, The Vern, and on today's episode, I am very thrilled to have a guest with us on here today to talk about the Jonathan Demi picture, The Silence of the Lambs. With me is Mr. Ryan Terry of the site, uh, rlterryrealview.com. Hello, Ryan. Good morning. I'm very happy to be here, and thank you so much for that marvelous introduction. Well, thank you very much, sir. <laughs> uh, now, your site is, as I said before, rlterryrealview.com, and maybe you can tell the listeners, you know, how you got into movie critiques and doing a blog or site and just kind of like, how did you start? All right, tell me, this is your biopic, all right? <laughs> oh, sure. I'm, uh, I'm very happy to talk about that because it, uh, it, I think, reveals a lot of the direction that my life has taken. Uh, you know, my, uh, again, my blog is where I list all my, my long-form articles, although I would argue that I'm much more active on Twitter so if your listeners are looking for a great way to interact with me in almost real time, uh, they can uh, you follow me on Twitter at rlterry1. That's uh, rlterry, the number one, because uh, that's where I spend a lot of my time. Uh, fortunately, I do get to write on my blog a couple times a week, uh, but I've uh, found that I enjoy the, like, uh, where it's almost like, uh, almost like face-to-face time on Twitter. So that's where I always encourage people to interact with me most. Uh, but I always post links to my articles, and so you'll find the long-form stuff there, and of course the more short-form comments uh, on my Twitter feed. I started with blogging. Um, actually, it was a class assignment. I went to the University of South Florida for graduate school, and um, there my, my research uh, involved studying uh, cinema and theme parks. So I wrote a book a few years ago that's uh, called On the Convergence of Cinema and Theme Parks, Developing a Predictable Model for Creative Design, uh, because I love both movies and theme parks. And so graduate school allowed me the opportunity to dive into both uh, very deeply. Uh, so the class I was taking was a multimedia journalism class. And one of our first assignments was to start a blog. And this was January 2014. Uh, so I started a blog as a part of my class assignment, and I found that I absolutely loved it. Uh, I knew I enjoyed writing because you really cannot go to grad school unless you enjoy writing because you're going to be doing a hell of a lot of it. So I, <laughs> so I knew that I, um, that I enjoyed it, and I just began growing from there. And I spent more and more time with it. I refined my articles. So if you go back to some of my earliest ones, they're very different from what I write now. Because the way I've written, I, at least over the last, uh, I'd say since 2015-16 is really when they began to take, uh, take you know, a good shape. Um, that they have a, I've come up with my own format. And so I, I stick with that. And uh, my, uh, you know, my, my studies in grad school and my writings on film eventually landed me a uh, part-time teaching position at the University of Tampa, 
which is a U.S. News and World Report top-rated school. I'm very fortunate to count myself among the faculty, albeit part-time. And at the University of Tampa, I teach screenwriting. And I've been teaching there for three years. And what? Yeah, I have. I Congratulations! <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm to the point now in my academic career to where I've started searching. Uh, I say nationwide, but I'm looking in uh, California, Arizona, Colorado, of course here in Florida, uh, Georgia, and a couple other places for full-time teaching positions. So if you're listening and you're a dean or chair of a department and you have a full-time film studies or screenwriting vacancy, please contact me. Uh, but uh, seriously, it's uh, just opened up a lot of doors for me. And not only do I get to talk to my students every week about what I love, which is story and film, I've been able to parlay that into an active presence on film Twitter, and then that's led me into being able to guest uh, uh, on a lot of different podcasts, and including now yours. I'm very happy to count yours amongst those that I've been able to guest on. And I uh, feel very much a part of the community, even though you know, I don't have a podcast myself, because I, between figure skating and working, and you know, going to the movies and doing my writing, and I, I, I edit the audio for an NPR show on the side as well. I just don't have the oh jeez, <laughs> I don't have the time to wow. to you know put in uh, to have my own podcast. Plus, I I uh, don't have nearly as beautiful a voice as my friend Noah over at Faux Fright. Uh, I and I've told Noah this before that he has just the most beautiful voice. I likened it to Ira Glass. He I I love listening. To his show because uh, his voice is very soothing and um, so, I, uh, so I'll have to let him know I was able to plug him plug him a little bit here and because he's uh, so I just don't think I have the kind of voice that people want to listen to every single week but it really boils down to uh, the time so this is my way of uh, contributing to the success of so many other podcasts because as an academic I love contributing to the success of my students and as an active member of the film Twitter community, this is my way of contributing to the success of other podcasts. And I, you know, I had no idea that people were really interested in what I thought. So it's uh, been very healthy for me. It's, uh, uh, you know, the self-esteem is something I have uh, always kind of struggled with. And, you know, being able to, uh, to develop friendships and make connections, you know, over the course of whether it's through my blog or Twitter, uh, has really meant a lot to me, and uh, this is uh, something I find immense enjoyment in. And like I was talking to the guys on Just So You Know podcast last night, that I think it's important that the uh, podcast community, uh, specifically uh, Film Twitter or the Potter and Family Film Edition, uh, to continue to support one another because it does feel like a family. And I think it's that yeah. feeling of family that sets it apart from other podcasts or other pod networks that feel so very uh, self-centered. And I, I love how it's, uh, it's, it's lot, a group of, lots of groups of people who just uh, love film or love TV and want to share what they think and they encourage conversation. And it was because I felt encouraged to join the conversation that I did it on Twitter. And, and now I, I have wonderful... Uh, times uh, actually getting to sit down and talk with you guys. So uh, so thank you and thank everybody else who has made time to incorporate me into their show because I uh, it's uh, I, I love giving back and it's a uh, it's a great platform to be a part of. 
Ryan, thank you. Well, that really just kind of warmed my heart right there with your words you said. All right, well, we're gonna do this right now as we always do. I gotta take a small break just to play some ads for the podcast shows, and then we'll be back to talk about the silence of the lamps. All right. Damien here from the Damien Riley Podcast. I hope you tune into my podcast. I love talking about movies and everything about them. You can subscribe at this website, thedamienreillypodcast.com. You can find me on iTunes or blueberry.com or really anywhere that good podcasts are served up. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. Hello everyone, this is JD from the In Session Film Podcast. Each week we review the latest from Hollywood, California. Well, yes, Brendan. We also give top three lists. Okay, yeah. Thanks again, Brendan. Additionally, you can hear us talk other movie news, trailers, varying movie series, or other interesting film-related topics, and even rants and raves of the week. That's correct, Brendan. On top of our main show, every Friday... You can also hear our extra film podcasts. Good job, Brendan. Thank you, J.D. It's my goal to make you proud. You're the father after all. (laughs) Yes, and I'm very proud. Uh, You can listen to the In Session Film podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or at InSessionFilm.com. Brendan, will you please let me complete just one? Nope. Oh, for heaven's sake. Listen to the In Session Film podcast every Monday and Friday. Subscribe today and hear me verbally beat J.D. like a Cherokee drum. No, 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 no. That's not how this works, sir. Hey, you you go cry at Midnight Special again, okay? That's what you're good for. I will. You know what? And I'll do it while pummeling you. I'll do both at the same time. How are you going to pummel me? Yeah, I I don't don't buy that. That's just how it works. A rookie FBI agent. Found a girl's body down in West Virginia. Are you saying that he's killed again? I'll help you catch him, Clary. A psychiatrist turned psychopath. Yes, and now Clary. Poor little Catherine is waiting. Opposites with one attraction. Tell me his name, doctor. Now. Lecker's missing Norm. Her life hangs in the balance. Man's a raving maniac. Who knows what he'll do? The Silence of the Lambs. Rated R. And welcome back, everybody, to the Cinema Recall Podcast. Again, my guest is Ryan of RL to Review. Uh, now, getting to Silence of the Lambs, uh, it was released in 1991, directed by Jonathan Demme, uh, screenplay by uh, Ted Daly. Ted Talley, sorry, based on the book by the same name, uh, by uh, Jonathan Harris. And um, now, I'll ask you, Ryan, uh, what is your kind of familiarity with the book before we get into the movie? Have you read the book? Uh, no. Um, as I uh, mentioned to you when you uh, contacted me about uh, being on the show to talk about this yep. movie, uh, it's a, a book that I'm largely unfamiliar. Um, what Great. I've read is that it was a good adaptation. Uh, So I haven't seen, I'm sure there are articles out there knocking the adaptation, but I came across uh, a lot of articles that praised it for its adaptation and even liked some of the changes. And uh, on the topic of uh, 
movies based upon books, if, uh, if you'll allow me. Uh, I talk to my students about this a little bit, because I one of the things that I like to address uh, early on in my screenwriting class is the whole, oh, the book was better. Well, uh, the reason for this, and uh, your listeners you know, may already be aware, but it, it never hurts to, to hear it again, is you know, uh, books are cognitively driven. Films are visually driven. Plays are dialogue driven. So in a, in a screenplay, you can only write what you can see. You can only write what you can hear. You cannot write thoughts. You cannot write feelings. Now, you can certainly write in to a character's actions you know, an expression of feelings, but you can't actually write in feelings. In a book, you can, uh, you, uh, because it is cognitively driven, you can get deep into the psychology of a character because uh, you're reading a book. You're not watching it on a screen. And so sometimes the changes from a to a movie, uh, from a book to a movie, are simply because you, you can't show it in a movie. You can't, or it would be really complicated, it would not translate well. And so screenwriters have to take liberties in how to, um, how to address that. And so it's, um, it's, most of the time it's not because somebody set out to write a, I mean, because people don't set out to make bad movies, for one. I mean, and you don't set out to make a bad adaptation, but just some books don't translate well. And so, yes, the book is better, but it's not because the movie's bad. It's because that book simply does not translate well to the screen, maybe because it is so cognitively driven that it made the, the translation difficult. Yeah, and what I've read uh, from other articles and seen other videos is that the book of Silence of the Lambs is very similar to the movie. It follows the same as that plotline, even coming down to certain dialogue that happens between characters. The only difference between the book and the movie that I saw is that in the book version, when Clarice goes to live on the ranch farm, it isn't because she lost both her parents like in the movie. In the book, her mom is still alive, but she just can't afford to take care of every kid there at her ranch after her father passes away. Um, she basically has to go live there because her mother can't afford what's going on in the house. And when she goes to live at the farm, there's that scene where she sees the lambs being slaughtered, but when she runs away, she doesn't rescue a lamb, it actually is a horse. And when she goes and escapes, she actually does find another farm to live at, and the horse lives there and everyone's happy, and then she grows up to be um, FBI agent. And I found that to be a very fascinating portrayal, but I like the way that Ted Talley, Ted Talley does it in the movie, and showing that she tried to help a uh, lamb escape, and then was forced to go back onto the farm. And yeah, it just had a more nuance with their character. Uh, this wasn't the first time. Uh, now, speaking about Sense of Lambs, now, I'm hoping that all the listeners have seen this movie because it's been out for ages. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not going to go into a big plot summary of the movie, but you should know for just basic general consensus of the film. It's about FBI agent Clarice Starlin. 
there is a serial killer on the loose, and so she has to invoke the help of another serial killer, Hannibal Lecter, to try to find the whereabouts of where he is before he kills again. That's the basic structure of the movie. Um, this is not the first time we've seen the character of Hannibal Lecter. Uh, he was in Tom Harris's first book, Red Dragon, which was first made into the movie Manhunter, directed by Michael Mann. Now, have you seen Manhunter? I have. I've seen I've seen Manhunter, Science of the Lambs, uh, Red Dragon, and Hannibal. Okay, gotcha. So, Manhunter, as you know, has a very different style to the Sons of the Lambs and other movies with Hannibal Lecter. Uh, like I said before, directed by Michael Mann, uh, very much a brighter color film. Uh, I think Michael Mann made this movie right before he did Miami Vice, so it definitely has a very much more brighter color tone and everything's done in, like white bright colors. It's been a while since I saw this movie, uh, but uh, Tan Noonan plays the role of the um, serial killer, the Tooth Fairy. Um, what are your tastes on Manhunter? Uh, I, I I feel about... I, I like Manhunter more than I do Red Dragon or Hannibal. I, yes. I feel that it... I mean, no one's going to argue that it's even close to being as good as Signs of the Lambs. So it's I, I don't want to spend time talking about, you know, which is better because we all know which one no, is no. better. So exactly. um, I feel that the characters were handled similarly. And just like uh, Science of the Lambs was so character driven, I feel that Manhunter was also character character driven story. And it did not try to... Uh, retcon anything it didn't try to uh change it, it didn't change up uh like the uh like the, the characters and the timelines like it it felt very much that it uh, it still fit into the universe th the way it should it i would say it's uh, like rogue one like i think rogue one is, in terms of disney star wars rogue one's my favorite i feel that it uh is the best at fitting into what we've grown to love and accept and know about the Star Wars universe, you know, prior to, you know, the, the Disney Star Wars movies. And so I really like Rogue One because it has such a similar tone to the, uh, the uh, especially the original three and the, 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 the lesser three. Um, and so that's what I, so I liken Manhunter to Rogue One and that it gave me precisely what I wanted. It told me a new story and I, it led me right up to... Uh, you know, I mean, it, it literally does. It leads us right up to the time that Clarice, you know, is at the prison. And that's what I, that's what I like about Rogue One. It led me right up to the opening of A New Hope. And Manhunter led me right up to the opening of Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, because, I mean, I do know that in the book of Silence of the Lambs, there is a scene that does connect the two stories together because Graham does appear in the book of the Sounds of the Lambs where Clary Starlin walks in there. Um, so yeah, after Manhunter, Manhunter was a moderate successful movie, wasn't that big. Um, we never really heard about the story of Hannibal Lecter or more until uh, Sounds of the Lambs came out and directed by Jonathan Demme who before Sounds of the, Sounds of the Lambs was known for doing mostly comedies, uh, movies like Something Wild and Married to the Mob. 
he also did um, the Tartan Heads movie Stop Making Sense. Um, his first movie was a collaboration with producer Roger Corman, who has a cameo appearance in Sounds of the Lambs. Um, that's where he fat, that's where he first met his cinematographer uh, Tag Fujimoto, who has been his cinematographer. Um, Substantial films, including this and uh, Philadelphia, Rachel Getting Married, um, they've been a bit a collaborative team for uh, a long while. Uh, now, Ryan, this is kind of a big step for a director to do from someone that's mostly known for doing comedies to then do a horror film such as this. I mean, this has got to be a big deal. And I'm just kind of curious about, I mean, I think he did a fantastic job with this, but you never hear this too much of filmmakers uh, or even studios taking chances on filmmakers known for like one genre to doing something completely different. I mean, this is different than like him going from, I think it was like he went from uh, something wild to Married to the Mob to comedy films and then from going from that to this is kind of out of left field there, so I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on Jonathan Demi's early movies to this. Sure, I well, I think a great parallel to draw here is with Jordan Peele. For the longest time, oh yeah, we uh, just thought of Jordan Peele and uh, Key and Peele, their their comedy show. It was great. I mean, how many of us don't maybe once a year or once every couple of years go back and watch The Substitute Teacher? Or go back and watch uh, some of their other really popular uh, mo- uh, movie uh, shows, and uh, he, uh, I think it's I, I love what he's done uh, with his career because, uh, like Demi, uh, he's gone from these co- uh, comedy to thriller, and you know, with us, uh, he's said that it's going to be much closer to horror than even Get Out was, and so Get Out was like you know hybrid horror thriller. And it sounds like Us is going to be, you know, much more closer, but be much closer to horror. And so I feel that he's on a, um, he's almost on a similar trajectory as Jonathan Demme. And I love seeing directors uh, just try their hand uh, and succeed uh, because uh, it's entirely possible that uh, Jordan Peele, and I, I don't know a lot about his personal life, so I, I can't I can't speak to that. But I imagine that as a teenager, as a young adult, that he perhaps loved horror films, that he loved thrillers. I mean, he's even giving us you know a new Twilight Zone, which I I'm cautiously optimistic for. Uh, but maybe he to get his career going, uh, comedy is what paid the bills. So he uh, so he became a known name and the genre that paid the bills until he had the name to then pursue what he truly wanted. You could say the same thing about Lady Gaga. Uh, as we all know, Lady yeah. Gaga was classically trained. You know, the, the, uh, the pop Gaga that we, that we all love, you know, isn't necessarily what she wanted to do, but she went after that because she saw the opportunity to, oh, this is what's going to pay the bills. This is what's going to make me, uh, you know, the, a star is born. I mean, to to coin, you know, the, yeah. the movie. This is, and so, and then we saw with her performance at the, I, it was the Golden Globes or the Oscars a few years ago where she did the uh, Sound of Music number. You know, we, yeah, and we got to see, uh, we got to see a new side of Gaga. She had the whole uh, Vegas show, um, 
and so it i think it, it's i think you can say similar things about those two stories to jonathan demi and yeah i don't know what uh you know prompted him to you know to want to do a horror film but it's uh it's possible that that is what he loved but he saw the opportunity in the other to make a name for himself and i think that's just being a very smart uh business person i mean there's uh twice as many letters in the word business as there is show so you've got to know um how to market yourself as a business professional to in order to get the show that you want no yes definitely true there and I like the comparisons you made to Jordan Peele and his earlier careers. That's right, you guys made a name for yourself. Uh, Lee Gaga says, "Yeah, I was I'm, I was a moderate fan of Lee Gaga. I liked a few of her songs, but I always thought that she was kind of a flash in the pan, one of those artists that is more style over substance. Like I knew about her crazy, you know, her crazy clothes and everything." But, yeah, when she did the whole tribute to Sound and Music, yeah, I was floored and I became much more respectful of her craft. And I think the same thing, like you said before, can be said for Jonathan Demi because he was known for doing these light, heartwarming comedies, you know, nothing that big, fluffy comedies, and then he goes for Sons of, Sons of the Lambs, and that's when people really took notice of him, and he had a good career, uh, Philadelphia, Rachel Getting Married, um... Since you do teach a class in screenwriting, I kind of want to dive into more of about the screenplay aspect of this movie. And for you teaching a class in screenwriting, what makes the story of Sons of the Lambs just, you know, resonate for you so well? I mean, what makes Ted Talley's adaptation so good in your opinion? Uh, this, this screenplay, uh, I mean, for one, it's an Oscar winner. Uh, what I love about uh, Silence of the Lambs is uh, that it's the last film to have won the big five awards. It won director, actor, actress, director, and adapted screenplay all at the same time uh, because it was just that powerful of a story. And uh, the, the casting was brilliant. The directing was uh, the direction was exceptional, but you wouldn't have had any of these things if you didn't have the screenplay. Every movie, every film uh, starts with a screenplay, be it an outline, as in the as is the case with uh, you know silent cinema, um, or you know a, a full fledged you know 120 page screenplay like you have today. And so it starts uh, with a screenplay. I mean, you can go back and say it starts with an idea, but it really takes its shape when you when you have the screenplay and uh the the screenplay is absolutely perfect uh there's uh there's no one single moment that i would change uh it's uh cinematically perfect just the way it is uh it's a brilliant uh hybrid of horror and thriller uh, it's arguably a dark crime thriller in fact i would argue that it's the first film uh first notable film there may be smaller films that i'm unaware of but the first notable film to truly launch us into the dark crime thriller uh, uh subgenre you know of of horror and it's uh there's a um, i like it because in the screenplay there's certainly an intent to horrify audiences 
during uh, particular scenes in the film. And it's that intent to horrify which puts it in the horror category, not uh, not suspense thriller. I mean, it's a hybrid, but it's much more of a horror film because of that intent. When you when you have a, a film which you could perhaps argue, you know, which genre does it belong in? Look for the intent of the screenwriter and the director. Is the is there intent to horrify audiences during the film, or is the primary intent to uh, place audiences in suspense. And so this one certainly has an intent to horrify and that's what places it uh, in that category. And the uh, the screenplay uh, follows the, if you were to look for the, the catalyst and the big event and uh, our crisis and our show, like you look at all the uh, magnificent seven plot points as David Trottier in his book, The Screenwriter's Bible puts it, I mean, it, it hits all those marks exactly, and not in a way that's uh, boring because it's following a template. No, it's following what works. It's delivering us the uh, the all those strategic plot points. It's delivering them to us in powerful ways, and it gets us to identify with Clary Starling very early on, and that some of that is through the cinematography and how we're often looking from her POV. And we have, we start with great characters. And that's what sets Science of the Lambs apart from other, you know, quote, you know, like similar films because it's character driven. But yet we do have um, a plot that is intriguing uh, because it's not so much of a whodunit because we, we know whodunit. I mean, we see uh, Levine's Buffalo Bill throughout the movie, he, and he gets, he get, I mean, on the topic of, uh, of Levine, he gets overlooked. He delivers he an amazing performance, and so few people take the time to acknowledge it, except through the gif of, you know, it robes the lotion on its skin. I see that gif a lot. I love using it. Yeah. And, and like, the, uh, even Family Guy parodies the, uh, the, the, the scene in, uh, towards the end of the movie in which he's dancing in the mirror and he's uh, putting on uh, the makeup and the costume and the wig and even Family Guy parodies it because they don't parody it because it's a um, it's like not a great moment in cinema. No, they parody it because it is a great memorable moment in cinema. And I think uh, he gets uh, he gets overlooked a lot for his role as Buffalo Bill. And I like to highlight his performance because his performance is unnerving. It's so unsettling. I, I absolutely love it. And uh, you know, these characters uh, can trace their success uh, back to the words of the screenplay. And then the actors bring the characters to life. And you really could not have asked for a better cast. It's dark and twisted and masterfully <laughs> delivered. Yes. I mean, you mentioned uh, Ted Levine, Buffalo Bill, great role. Uh, even Scott Glenn as uh, Jack Crawford really great stuff in that film um what i think made sense of the lambs so horrifying is that we sometimes will i guess identify with the darker side of ourselves because we're seeing this film through clarice's point of view and how she's been kind of uh what's the word here like manipulated by her male counterparts they don't really see her as being equal she's working hard to try to be the best and wants to, you know, 
overcome the whole male gaze and I like how you mentioned about certain POV shots being done from her point yes. of view as the male gaze looking at her. Um, she goes to take this job to interview Hannibal Lecter and it's the fact that both she can kind of see the humanity and he can see in her kind of the will and drive. Like That's why he has such a respect for that lady and their conversations conversations together he knows that she's a very smart capable individual and they have this weird kind of uh maybe a romance or definitely a connection and when audiences react to that they're basically feeling uneasy but they also kind of want them to get together at least I know when I first saw this film back with my family, we watched the whole film as a family when this movie came out because my mom read the book and she was a big fan of the book. And so when this movie came out, we all had like only a few TVs in the house. So anytime a movie came out, we watched it as a family. So I remember watching this as a family, having di- TV dinners and watching this film and just seeing their relationship build. It is essentially kind of a love story in a way because Claire Reese has never felt any respect in her, in her field and Hannibal Lecter never feels that anybody respected his craft. Uh, maybe Graham from back in Ben Hunter slash Red Dragon but since this is a, a whole new feature he's never really had that connection with anybody and now for the first time in his life he's found someone that can actually have that about him and I thought it to be that's where for me the most of the terror comes across yeah um the um I think the the relationship between uh Starling and Hannibal is one that uh truly it, it their relationship parallels uh, the action points in the screenplay, and they are uh, one of the one of the the, the, the things that I teach my students uh, in screenwriting is your central character is only as interesting as your character of opposition. So if you want your central character to be more interesting, have a great character of opposition, and you could not have asked for a a, a better character of opposition. Uh, than Hannibal. He also functions as an anti-hero, and that's why we like him. Because if he was completely evil, we wouldn't like him. It's very important that your character of opposition or your your villain have something that we like. Because nobody is completely good, just like nobody is completely evil. And it's those moments of respect and goodness that are in Hannibal uh, which endear us to him. And I think they're very much a, a match for wits. And I think early on, uh, Hannibal realizes this. And he's like, whoa, I've met uh, someone who can who uh, not only understands my craft, but somebody who's a match for me. And I, I respect that. Uh, it's like a worthy opponent, so to speak. And that's... Uh, and so it's their relationship which uh, drives the uh, the subplot and a lot of the subtext of the film 
Uh, she shows great signs of strength, vulnerability, and innocence and determination. And Hannibal, he really likes that. You know, hence why she doesn't feel her life doesn't feel threatened by him, as she remarks towards the end of the movie. Yeah, I mean, there's even a great sequence in the beginning when she first meets him that she shows very strong pose and confidence. She doesn't shudder away or hide away or even tries to, what's the word here, manipulate her words. She doesn't try to change her words to seem like she has to be afraid of him. She doesn't use any apologetic words or phrases. No, she's very much straight to the point and when she talks to him about how she needs her help needs his help in trying to find this killer and even when he tries to turn things around, she's able to come back at him with very quick stuff too and Hannibal Lecter respects that as an individual and that's why he wants to help her out but he still wants to help challenge her in a way is there and I really try to spec that and maybe that's what audiences find most unnerving is that they're seeing themselves as Clarice going into the darkness of this mental institution and the weird thing is too is after I, I watched the movie recently and there is a sequence when Jack Crawford before he takes her downstairs is basically hitting on her and tell her that she should have like, a good guide while being in the city and he does it just so slimy not Jack Crawford but the uh, sorry the mental institution yes. guy which I've, I forgot his name uh, very Migs, slimy Migs. yeah well, that, well yeah multiple Migs is the guy in the jail cell I'm talking about the, the guy who owns the oh Jack Crawford jail cell is that, no but that's the FBI director not that's, oh that's, that's Dr. Not, Chilton I'm sorry Dr. Chilton Dr. Chilton, yeah. thank you, right? Yeah, Dr. Chilton is basically hitting on her, and he seems to be more of a villain than Hannibal Lecter, because when she comes to the jail cell, most of the other inmates there are very deranged, and they look all medicine, but when Clarice comes to Hannibal's cell, he's very standing there politely, you know, not scowling at her. He's got this slight smile on his face, oh... Like welcome her in, and I found it to be kind of a nice juxtaposition between those two scenes, uh, especially with uh, Dr. Chilton and Hannibal Lecter showing two sides of the sort of like male gaze. And Dr. Chilton sees Clarice as just another hot-looking young student that he can maybe seduce and manipulate, uh, but for Hannibal Lecter, he sees her as you know, a very intelligent woman has like a lot of respect for her. He doesn't see Clarice in a sexual way right away, as versus Doctor Chilton, Chilton does, or most other men in this movie. Uh, and I found it to be very kind of a fascinating thing, and maybe that's what scares audiences. Is fat audiences is the fact that Hamlet,er yeah, he may be a cannibal, but he's also a very caring person person that does respect women yeah it's this subversion of the male gaze all throughout science of the lambs uh which uh adds so much uh, of uh, critical value to the world of cinema because it's uh you know it's one of the the early films that uh has a very strong female protagonist i mean previous mm -hmm. films had final girls 
but she is by definition, I would consider uh, the uh, definitive uh, strong female protagonist because her entire character, her actions, the relationships that she has in the films, I don't mean sexual relationships, I mean just the relationships with people, it's constantly subverting this idea of the male gaze. She gave us somebody who was to be revered and admired, and she uh, you know, never backed down. Uh, she has very strong wit and a strong intellectual prowess. She's hardworking, and we know she's hardworking because she's in the FBI Academy. Uh, we observe her uh, uh, holding her own in a field dominated by men. I love the whole opening sequence. You know, you might just pass over it as just like establishing she's at the FBI Academy, but it really means a lot more that she has the raw determination to achieve what she wants. And it's later on in the movie that we learn the particular area of the FBI that she wants to that she wants to focus on. And uh, the motif of uh, the male gaze is handled uh, really creatively. Uh, I love the different depictions of uh, female agency through the film. And uh, you can uh, liken uh, a quote of Clarice's to uh, what the film's actually doing. And it's a, it's a line that no one quotes very often. We all hear, you know, good evening, Clarice. Uh, but we don't hear uh, we don't hear this line, um, and the line is, if he, referring to Buffalo Bill, sees her as a person and not just an object, it's harder to tear her up. This is the line that highlights uh, the often overlooked theme uh, central to the plot of the film. Uh, there's also reoccurring imagery, again, of the male gaze, of uh, everything from the, the elevator in which the guys are quite literally towering over her, or to Dr. Chilton's crass comments uh, at the beginning, or multiple MIGs uh, the, throwing uh, uh, bodily fluids on her as she walks through, um, as she walks through the jail cell. Uh, because uh, the, the film, uh, her character and the film combat the uh, heterosexual male dominance that objectified women all through cinema. So we're subverting the voyeuristic gaze, and uh, she uh, just never, um, she uh, never, uh, it, she's never, uh, in a, she never cowers. She holds her own, and she has a, a very strong uh, presence and dominance about her, and. Uh, She's everything that we want in a horror or thriller protagonist, uh, and it's uh, it's the beauty of this film. It's both horror and suspense, and uh, she works. Uh, you know, she's she's worked her way into our hearts because uh, she is brave and such an authentic human. There's no pretense about her. You know, she's more than a strong protagonist. She's a feminine icon who needs no qualifiers. Very well said, Ryan. Very well said, indeed. Uh, yeah, being the yeah, I like the fact too because Clarice is never the quote unquote. She is the final girl in this, but she's a lot more in this. She's the she's the embodiment of all horror character tropes into just one role. Um, yeah, she's very well defined. Uh, I've got no other words because you basically took everything I want to say. 
about uh, Clary Sterling into one complete rule there. Um, yeah. Boy, you just basically just everything I even want to say about any of this movie there. Um, I do like the... I do like the way how the story progresses. Yes. And tone right there. I mean, it does have a very much slow progression. Something that I wish most horror movies had today. I wish most horror movies concentrated more on building up characters rather than tell or showing situations. I figure I, I think that like most horror films nowadays, and you may agree or disagree with me on this, are just setting up scares rather than really building tension. You know, like, they're building, like, multiple scares, like, setting up a new scare every few scenes, because it's a horror film, we gotta put a scare in here, so they gotta put characters into situations that are scary, and Silence of the Lambs doesn't do that. I mean, there's a brilliant sequence when Clarice is first investigating, and uh, Hannibal tells her about the storage unit that she should look out, because it tells about a dead patient of his... And there's the reveal of just a head in a jar. Yeah, in there. Yeah, the um, uh, that's what. Oh, go ahead. The you're right. Uh, there are uh, many horror, and I call them horror movies, not films, that do rely upon uh, the jump scare uh, or gore, you know, much too heavily. And I I feel I mean those movies can be fun. There there I'm glad we have them. They are fun to watch. I don't really glean anything uh, from them, except I have a good time watching a schlocky horror movie. Uh, but it's uh, it's just lazy story writing when you rest your film upon all these jump scares. Because the movie's fun that first time through, but if all you have are jump scares, then it's not fun the second time around. It doesn't have rewatchability. So it's not it's not that jump scares are bad. There's nothing wrong with a jump scare, but you can't just allow your, like, you can't base the success of your movie or the scare factor on jump scares because you're not going to have that rewatchability. So by strategically placing jump scares or strategically placing gore, you know, then I think that def it's a great accessory to a film. It should not, if you're wanting to make a film, it should not be the main attraction. If you're just wanting to make a fun, schlocky horror movie, it's fine. I like watching those occasionally on Netflix, but it's movies like this, excuse me, films like this, which uh, spark conversation, like the conversation that we're having now. And I like your mentioning of uh, uh, Miss Moffat in the uh, the yourself storage, uh, because one of the one of the criticisms that the film has received in more recent years is its portrayal of the LGBTQ community. And I wanted to touch uh, on that and combat those who um, uh, knock the film. Because when the film came out, and especially when it got nominated for an Oscar, there were a lot of groups who were protesting the film and uh, for, for its portrayal. And I, I think that um, their portrayal, it, their, their perception was not... Uh, I think they uh, didn't take enough time to appreciate what the film was actually doing. They were just focused on, oh, you're showing somebody you know, who's a member of the LGBTQ community who's violent. And like that's all they were focused on was it's a, a violent member 
of the community and and so I think while uh, you know while some do negatively criticize the screenplay for portraying uh, transgendered individuals as being predisposed to abnormal or violent behaviors, Tally's screenplay comes to its defense by including yeah. dialogue that transgendered individuals are uh, n uh, are prone to pa uh, pacificity. Plus, no, there's no scientific correlation between what we would now call the LGBT community and violence. So he specifically has dialogue that says no, uh, specifically referring to uh, transgendered individuals, that they're prone to being passive. They're not prone to being violent. And, um, and so, uh, well, oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, there's a great sequence, too, where uh, Hannibal Lecter says to Clarice that Buffalo Bill thinks he's a transgender individual and I'm sure he has gone to Clint to try to get reassignment surgery but they turned him down and he, here's a guy who's you know not transgender but through years of abuse in the past made him thinking that he has his way and that he has to do this to women to change I mean this is not this is not a transgender individual this is a very violent person yes not a trans yeah so they, they do re re recall that in the movie. Yeah, so I, I think it's actually, uh, I the, the movie uh, handles it very well, and it's by no means a slam. And I, I think it's, it's when you're not taking the entire movie or the entire scene into context. I think when you, when you take it into context, then you discover exactly uh, what we've uh, you know, talked about in terms of its portrayal of members of the LGBTQ community. Well, in most in, in this day and age now, Ryan, a lot of people don't take stuff into context because we live in a society where everything is just now an instant. So if this movie came out today, uh, in the age of social media, and people just saw an image, or even just a text saying that uh, a guy who's a transgender is a serial killer, then people would just go up in arms and say all these things without actually seeing the whole movie or reading the screenplay. They would just hear that one little snippet and everything would go into chaos and people would ask the producers and actors to change the characters around or make certain adjustments. Um, but yeah, it's, it's all because people don't want to read the whole context Oh, the whole piece. It kind of reminded me of the whole, um, um, and I'm going to sidetrack here a little bit there too, the whole Liam Neeson and his story about him being a racist back when he was younger because one of his relatives was attacked by an African-American. And so he had racist thoughts, but all most people saw was Liam Neeson admits to be, Liam Neeson was a racist and, People wanted to boycott his movie, Cold Pursuit, because he had a story about him being racist. But if you read kind of the whole con the whole context of the stories, he's basically saying, I had racist thoughts in the past. I don't do anymore. You know, I learned from it. It was a mistake. That whole thing right there. People people look too much to little sound bites rather rather than hearing the whole story no it's it's very true uh you know and um i haven't seen cold pursuit yet but it's not related to his uh you know uh his you know so-called torpedoing of the of the you know the ad campaign uh because i uh i and i mentioned this on twitter to somebody and um 
that you know i you know i'm sure in my past that i've made some off the cuff comments and you know, on a variety of topics i mean and so you know uh, we're all flawed uh we don't always think about what we say before we say it and i think it's an example of uh of an off the cuff comment which was poorly executed uh it was uh, perhaps poorly thought out um but uh, just like you know i've made off the cuff comments in in my past and i can't, i don't like to hold off the cuff comments against other people what it does for me though is it it does make me a little bit more vigilant to perhaps pay attention now to more things that he says to see if it you know if this actually is a um is a pattern and that's what i look for is a pattern because we all gotcha make mistakes and we, yeah. we all have said things that we regret saying and I, I don't feel it's fair to to hold something against somebody unless there's been a pattern established in which that's a whole different case because then no this isn't okay. off the cuff this isn't a mistake there's a pattern here and then you know then that's a problem so I kind of, so it, it kind of sucks that uh, his very much throwback 90s action movie uh, didn't do so well in part you know because of you know, the, the comment that he made during that interview. Gotcha. We're getting kind of on yeah. top of tool through. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, but getting back to uh, Silence of the Lambs, uh, here's one fascinating, fascinating thing I read um, about the casting of this movie. Um, now, Jodie Foster is obviously going to be a great pick for this movie. She has shown to have a great uh, dramatic range uh, from movies uh, like The Accused before this, which she also won an Academy Award for. Uh, but when it came to casting Anthony Hopkins, and I'm just reading this online, um, Anthony Hopkins was cast in this movie because Jonathan Demme saw his role in The Elephant Man. And Anthony Hopkins was taken back by that, saying that, well, but the Doctor in Elephant Man was a good man. Why would you want to cast me as being this psychopath killer or this, you know this deranged mind and then we said to him letter is a good man just trapped in an insane mind oh i love that that's that that's a great yeah. i mean that 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 sums up his character right there uh that's oh uh, that's that, that's really fantastic and so very true you know, and that's a great thing too about when directors are cast in actors for their roles I, I don't want them to pick like the typical actors for serial killers that's what I'm kind of glad um, that Zach Efron is being Ted Bundy and that new oh yeah uh, I forgot the name of it right now I think to say I think it's called from a deranged mind I forgot what it's called actually but Zach Efron is in a new Ted Bundy movie and it looks amazing um, and then you go into the other characters too uh, definitely uh Ted Levine as Buffalo Bill, and after watching him in Monk, that's a Buffalo Bill does not even seem like him anymore. It's a very way different performance, and I'm kind of surprised that he was not nominated for any Academy Awards, like you said there. Um, and then going into what we said about the whole jump scare factor, it's funny because Buffalo Bill, you never actually see him until much later on. All right, you see him with the goggles, you see his hands, you see a lot of stuff with his hands before you see his face. Yeah. And the reveal of him, you know, it's funny, the reveal of Buffalo Bill is kind of like the reveal of the shark and Jaws. Yeah. All right. It's um, uh, like Jaws, I 
uh, rewatched Jaws uh, this uh, past summer on July 4th because it's one of my favorite movies to watch on the 4th of July. And I was specifically looking for um, at what point in the movie does uh, Bruce show up. And we don't actually see Bruce until the third act of the, of the, of the film. And so it, it, I love that. I love that reveal. It's, uh, it's not the amount of time on screen which can make uh, a character terrifying. It's how they're used and how they're revealed. And I love the reveal of Levine's Buffalo Bill. And, I mean, looking back, it's easy to see him as like the creepy guy at the van. But, you know, if you hadn't seen the movie before, you don't know that the guy standing at the van, you, you have your doubts anyway. You don't know that he is Buffalo Bill, and I, I, I really like how, uh, how we see him there, but then we don't really get to spend much time with him until we then get to go back uh, to his lair, and uh, where every scene with him reveals something new, and uh, so he's very much like an onion. Uh, your characters and plot should be like onions. Every scene should reveal something new. Every scene should move the plot forward. And every scene in this movie does just that. And uh, we learn more and more about his character um, each time we spend with him. And he's on screen just enough. I mean, the you know uh, uh, Hopkins uh, Hannibal is only on screen for I think it's 16 minutes, and yet yeah, it was a command performance which won him an Oscar. And it's it has nothing to do with the screen time as much as it does how it's executed and evoking that emotional and physiological response from the audience and forming that connection. Yeah, we, we talked earlier about how Academy, uh, uh, Sounds of Lambs won the top five for best uh, screenplay, uh, picture, director, but one category that I feel this movie should have been nominated for was Howard Shore's score. Um, Howard Shore, best known to listeners out there for doing the score for the Lord of the Rings trilogy, as well as being a frequent collaborator with uh, David Cronenberg, I think the a lot of the music, what what made Sense of the, Sense of the Lambs so iconic, is that score. Um, he he knows how to really balance out uh, the terror and dread, as well as the kind of like even the heartbreaking scenes of Jodie Foster's character reminiscent about her dad. Um, I think Howard Shore does not get uh, much credit for that movie as I think he should. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to mention really quickly about Howard Shore and his really amazing score for this movie. Yeah, I, I absolutely love the score. Uh, a great score should be an extension of the narrative, the extension of the, of the tone in the screenplay. And that's what his score is. That's why it's a great score. Um, great scores um, are not ones that uh, where it's like you can you separate it from you can separate it from the movie. You know, then it becomes a soundtrack. It, it's, it has much uh, much uh, less depth. But a score that's a direct extension of what's going on in that particular scene, that's a powerful score, and you're right. I, I haven't spent much time analyzing uh, Howard Shore's score, so I'm afraid I can't go into more detail than that. But when I watch it, it feels like it, uh, it is a direct extension of what's going on, and that's why his score works so incredibly well.
uh, his sorry, his scores for all of his movies have just have really great range. Especially if you go back and listen to his earlier scores from Cornerbird, it's got a lot of like synthesizer work and very much experimentations with rock music. And then you go into his scores for Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings with the sweeping, uh, you know, Philharmonic Symphony score. Uh, even his work on Tim Burton's Ed Wood, um, which is the only one that Tim Burton ever made without Danny Elfman, is very good as well. And here's the thing too, Howard Shore was a, uh, I think he was the musical director for SNL. Oh wow, I didn't know that. Set. Yeah, so he's definitely had a wide range of you know musical accomplishments there, and I think he really did something bold with this. And I was kind of upset to know that I don't think he even I don't think he even was nominated for best score. If I can recall right about that, so that was another big kind of a shocking thing about it. Um, but what we do, Ryan, on every episode of uh, Cinema Recall, is we get into our favorite moments of the Sons of the Lambs and what makes it so iconic or important. Before you get into your favorite scene, I need to ask you this because you do teach class in screenwriting. In your mind here, alright, what is it about Sons of the Lambs that made it so relevant and what are thrillers slash horror films doing right or doing wrong? with its approach, like, there's there's never been a movie, like, especially a horror movie, that has been this acclaimed in a long time. Maybe, uh, Get Out has some acclaim for its, it did win for Best uh, Original Screenplay, uh, but it was never, it didn't get nominated for uh, Best Actors, um, or anything else. It got nominated for Best Picture, but what is the horror community or thrillers doing right or wrong with its approach to the material like can we ever have another sounds of the lamps oh there's a lot to unpack there um uh specifically focusing uh on the 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 part about what horror films are doing right or doing wrong uh and uh, what's currently playing in cinemas or on netflix uh, i think it's it's when we it's when we take the focus off of the characters and place the focus on the action sequences or those jump scares. And I think that's what a lot of uh, horror movies get wrong. Uh, if we if if we are going to say like right and wrong, and I think it's hard to like contrast films, you know, so starkly. But uh, it's uh, when the focus is taken off of the characters I think when you have a character-driven story and a simple plot, you can do a lot more with it. Much like we have with Hereditary. Hereditary and A Quiet Place did so much right. I absolutely loved those last year. Uh, Halloween, David Gordon Green's Halloween was a great throwback. I, I felt that it channeled so much of what made the first one work very well. Uh, there's certainly some moments in the new Halloween that I think are a little hokey, but I like horror films that have a little bit of hokey in them. That's why we like to enjoy them. I just don't like it when the hokey is taken too far. 
when the jump scares are taken too far. It's when we're, when we have like what should be taken really far are your characters. And yet those are the ones that seem to get left behind sometimes. So I, I like films that, uh, I think what films, what, uh, A Quiet Place and a Hereditary did right was focusing in on the characters. And I, uh, still feel that Toni Collette was robbed uh, nominations all award season for her portrayal in Hereditary because that performance was incomparable, and, her, and yeah. so it's a char- it's a character driven horror film. Science of the Lambs, a character driven horror film. Uh, a Quiet Place, which has some sci fi elements in it, character driven. Uh, Ridley Scott's Alien, character driven. So these films are character driven stories that have some amazing horrific thrilling suspenseful moments see i find that uh, most filmmakers don't know how to balance having setting up situational horror and having a character driven story especially nowadays because like i said before we live in a time and age where everything has to be all instant and right away and having uh having just characters in a film doesn't represent a big bots office approach to having a successful film and I thought it'd be kind of frustrating and I, you gave some great examples of you said a quiet place and uh, hereditary having strong characters and but I want I'm hoping that there'll be another movie that really kind of takes its time a movie. I want people to argue if a movie is a horror film or not, because for years people have been arguing, till this, still to this day, if Silence of the Lambs is a thriller or horror film. I call it a horror film. I've seen arguments from other people calling it a thriller, a psychological thriller, because and it, one of my friends has done this for years because he hates horror films. He'll never watch a horror film. And so when I told him that Silence of the Lambs is a horror film, he's like, no, it's a thriller, all right? I'll watch thrillers, I'm like, yes, but there's still some horror elements into this. I mean, you got the main character of Clary Starlin kind of going into the dark, especially when she goes to investigate Buffalo Bill's lair. I mean, it's a story about a guy who skins women alive to make a human suit. I mean, that is definitely slasher categories there and just because it doesn't have any horrific scenes of him you know slicing off skin does not mean it's not a horror film oh exactly it's the it's the intent it's uh it's almost more powerful what we don't see it was uh alfred hitchcock who said there's nothing scarier than an unopened door or i may be paraphrasing uh, but that, I mean, it's very, it's very true. I mean, I love horror films that give us just enough on screen that, that we connect all the details in our mind because that activates our mind, that brings us into the story, and what we create in our minds sticks with us long after the movie is over. We're an actively engaged audience. So buy a mm-hmm. film just giving us enough and us filling in the 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 the, the I guess as uh, Dr. Malcolm would uh, say, we fill in the holes and complete the code. Or is uh, actually I think it was Dr. Grant in Jurassic Park who who said that. But so and so it's that um and so it's our it's it forces us to participate in the movie. 
And that's what Science of the Lambs does really well. We feel like we're a participant because, I mean, we have POV shots. Uh, we have, we're seeing, we're looking at just enough, even when they draw out uh, Frederica Bimmel from the water, who we later learn is really the first victim. You know, we never get a, a good, you know, clear shot of the body, but we look at just enough to where what we create in our mind, I think is much scarier than what we would have seen had we had any uh, lingering shots uh, on the bloated body. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. Um, so let's get into this right now, Ryan. I want to hear about your favorite moment from the Science of the Lambs. Uh, my favorite moment from Science of the Lambs is actually at the, uh, uh, it's towards the beginning. It's the introduction uh, of uh, Clarice and Hannibal. Oh, agents, darling, you think you can dissect me with this blunt little tool? No. I, I, I thought that your knowledge... You're so ambitious, aren't you? Do you know what you look like to me with your good bag and your cheap shoes? You look like a rube. A well-scrubbed, hustling rube with a little taste. Good nutrition's given you some length of bone, but you're not more than one generation from poor white trash, are you, Agent Starling? And that accent you've tried so desperately to shed, pure West Virginia. What does your father do? Is he a coal miner? Does he stink of the land? You know how quickly the boys found you. All those tedious, sticky fumblings in the back seats of cars while you could only dream of getting out, getting anywhere, getting all the way to the end. See a lot, Doctor. But are you strong enough to point that high-powered perception at yourself? What about it? Why don't you why don't you look at yourself and write down what you see? Or maybe you're afraid to. A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. And so the whole sequence from uh, the moment we are meek Dr. Chilton and we uh, thwart his attempts at objectifying, you know, Clarice all the way down to the moment that Clarice has to run out of the jail cell. It's a scene that I use in my screenwriting class is one of the most brilliantly written scenes ever. And I, I love every, I love everything about it. You know, we could probably spend an entire episode just dissecting that introduction scene. And I, I know we don't have the time for that, but that, <laughs> that is my single favorite moment or sing, single favorite scene. And it's only like six to eight minutes long. It's, uh, uh, but within those six to eight minutes, we're we're given everything that we need to know uh, for for the rest of the film in terms of uh, these characters. And we learn a lot about Clarice. We learn a lot about Hannibal. And Hannibal, when he's looking directly into the camera, which is supposed to be him looking directly into Clarice's eyes, you know, there's almost no image more terrifying. You know that still shot of the way he's looking at the camera it, it's it's frightening and and so there's just so much in there that that it makes that introduction scene you know my favorite moment from the film it's frightened let me ask you this all right it's frightened because we of what we because what we hear 
um, they say about Hannibal Lecter that he's a cannibal, he's a bit serial killer, but if they never mentioned about Hannibal Lecter's past and that he is this you know brilliant psychiatrist that was arrested, we don't know for what, and we go into that basement and she sees him and Hannibal staring back, would we be scared? Because I, when I watched this again, I tried to look at the perspective of her not knowing too much about, you know, his past. And his look, it's scary because of what we know about his past. But we didn't know that. It does not seem to be that scary. Yeah, I think the, being told, because we, we form this image in our mind of the character we're going to encounter. And it's like, oh no, we actually meet a very continental gentleman. And, and so there's, uh, you know, we're uh, not quite sure what to make of him. And it's that ambiguity which uh, keeps us just off kilter a, a little, uh, just, just enough. And I, I love it when a film keeps us, you know, keeps our balance uh, just off to where there's always this, um, this kind of like uh, this sense of dread. And all through that scene, we have the sense of dread because we've heard about the horrible things he's done. But how can this, you know, very pleasant gentleman, you know, have done all these horrible things? And I think that's scary when you think that somebody really uh, smart and nice and cordial can be capable of such uh, horrific acts. Yo, oh, very much so. Very much so. Uh, yeah, now... Get into my moment here. It's funny because you pitched your moment at the very beginning. I'm gonna I'm gonna do my moment towards the end, and it's the moment after uh, Clarice is at that one girl's house and she sees the diamond-shaped designs. She finds out that this guy's a killer. Uh, he she says she's gonna check on this house. Uh, Jack Crawford and his team says, "Don't worry." Where he found the guy, we're on his way to his house right now. And they show up at the door and they ring the doorbell. And Buffalo Bill is downstairs and the lady's screaming to let her out. And she has his dog and he's feeling very frustrated. And the doorbell keeps ringing. The FBI, you know, agents are at his door. They're surrounding the whole place with the SWAT team. And then they, uh, Breathe through one more time. He goes to open up the door. It's not the FBI. It's Clarice just checking on a random house. And that moment really surprised me because it was a really great editing job done. Because you really thought that the FBI was going to storm into his house and arrest him. But nope, it's Clarice. And you know it had to be because there has to be the confrontation between the bad guy and the heroine. And so she goes into his house... And it isn't until she finds the butterfly swooping around that she makes the connection that this is the guy. And she pulls the gun, he runs away, goes downstairs, she follows him. And then she searches around, you got that one shot of the actual human suit being formed. And then the lights go off. And he's got the um, night goggle glasses. And he can see everything. She can't see anything at all. Very intense scene. He does those great POV shots 
with Buffalo Bill just reaching out to her and just slightly grasping her hair and she feels something but turns around but can't see anything because everything is pitch black dark and it isn't until she hears the click of his gun that she turns around and takes him out. I think that's one of the most brilliantly suspenseful scenes ever. I mean, even the start when it just misdirects you into thinking that uh, the FBI agents are going to storm into his house uh, to that last shot of her pulling the trigger. Just really brilliantly done. The performances, uh, the directing, the cast, yeah, one of my favorite moments in cinema. Oh, I absolutely love it. It's equally horrifying and thrilling all at the same time and certainly one of the the the, the most uh memorable uh showdowns in in any movie and i think you uh you selected uh, uh just an excellent scene from the film to highlight and i would have loved to have been there in the theaters back in 91 can you imagine watching that Cause i never saw this in theaters i never had a chance to but i would have loved to be and a theater where everything goes dark because I can just imagine all the screams and the gasps of people in there and just especially after the night goggles turn on and he's so close I just ma- I just imagine people's hearts were just you know fl- fluttering to non-stop levels right there with that yeah I hope um, that um that uh, Fathom and TCM, you know, partner to bring it to cinema. Like we get a lot of other great Fathom event films. I'm, oh yeah, yeah. I'm going to watch My Fair Lady this afternoon, and I've never, obvi- you know, never seen it on the big screen before. And last last week, I got to see a Knock Me on Elm Street on the big screen uh, for oh, the yeah? first time. So I love when I get to watch these movies that I've seen dozens of times on the big screen because the experience is definitely different and I, I love it. And so with it um, in 2021, it'll celebrate a science of the lambs will turn 30. And so I hope that with that 30th anniversary that we get a fathom event because I would love to go and watch uh, this film on the big screen. It's uh, it's in my top five favorite films of all time. So getting to see it on the big screen uh, is an opportunity that you know, I really hope I get to have. You know, that's weird too because uh, I, this happened with me with like uh, Die Hard and Night of the Living Dead, a few others. Like, I own these movies, I've seen them multiple times, but every time I get a chance to watch them on the big screen, I will do that. Uh, I am very lucky to live in a city where they actually show older movies. Back to theaters, like smaller movies like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure or Showgirls, you know, the fact I get to watch these on the big screen again is just a really big deal. And yeah, to actually have the 30th anniversary of Silence of the Lambs with like Ben Mankiewicz doing an introduction as they normally do with TCM would just be a really great thing um, to actually witness, especially bring someone in there that's never seen. Sounds of the Lamps before would be just a really great, very fun extravaganza. Oh, definitely. I uh, couldn't agree more. Yes, yes. Uh, one other thing I want to mention, too. I do like the shots of when Clarice has a flashback. Uh, either it's with her dad, or especially at the funeral home when she's going to investigate um, the body um, of the lady they pulled from the lake. And she opens up the door and... 
and it goes to like a slow push in to the coffin and you think that she's walking towards the casket of the lady that is there or the you know the funeral home and then it cuts to a shot of her as a little girl you know coming towards her dad's caskets um and he seems to do like a lot of shots too where it's set in the day like after she leaves the hospital and she's walking out towards um you know the parking lots and then it cuts to her as a kid meeting her dad and it all seems to be done in just like one take sort of i found that to be very fascinating of how he does flashbacks i thought it was really comfortable yeah thing. flashbacks uh it are one of those uh plot devices which get uh, abused and overly used and poorly executed so often you know movies and films that rely heavily upon flashbacks you know the question i ask is well if we're gonna spend so much time in the flashback why aren't we allowing the flashback to be the film why, why isn't the flashback the story if we're going to spend so much time there? And so just like every scene should reveal something new about a character and move the plot forward, a flashback should also drive the plot forward. And it should yeah. be integrated uh, in a way that feels seamless with the rest of the story. And the way Jonathan Demme um, integrates the flashbacks uh, he's using uh, moments that are in our present story that parallel the moments that are in the backstory, which make them even more powerful and they fit in really well. And so we don't think about them as like, oh, that was a flashback. You know, it's, it, it feels like it's part of the story. It has the same soul. It's beating with the same heart. And I, I love how he integrates them. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Like I said before, like the way he just makes everything seem like part of one shot and it doesn't have to do with the last sequence. And it's not like a freaking dream sequence, which I see too many bad stories or flashbacks being done as just a, uh, a you know, a dream sequence or they get drunk and pass out or, you know, trip out because of drugs or something yeah. like that. Yeah. It's not lazy exposition. And so often flashbacks exactly. can feel like lazy exposition. And so it's not. Yes, there is exposition there. Exposition is important. But you have to know how to deliver it in a way that advances the plot. And Jonathan Demme does just that. Very much so. All right. Well, I do want to say we're coming towards the end of our show because I don't know what else to say about Sense of the Lambs that we haven't uh, commented on already. It's a fantastic movie. If you have never seen it before, you really should have done it before listening to this episode. All right. In fact, I will be fine if you stopped halfway through and watched Silence of the Lambs and then come back to this later on because I think it's more important to watch that movie than to listen to our show. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong. I love having you listen to the show. I love you all. Don't say that. I'm not saying that at all. Don't, don't Come back here. Come back here. Don't go away just yet. Um, but thank you very much for listening. Huge thank you to you, Ryan, for being on this episode. Uh, you brought a lot of uh, professionality to the show more than me just you know ranting on and on because usually on Terror Tuesdays I just give a short little review about a horror film and what I liked or didn't like about it uh, so I appreciate uh, your professional courtesy in being yeah, on the show thank you very much for having me I've had a, a wonderful time and I, I, I again thank you so much for taking your time out to uh, include me uh, in your Terror Tuesday. My uh, my last thoughts on the film uh, that I just want to leave the audience with is that you know this film 
uh, contains a, and this is specific to Women in Horror Month. Uh, this you know, film contains a very healthy, progressive message for feminism, you know, more specifically women working in a man's world, you know, Foster Starling gave a voice to those women who are working diligently to prove that they are just as capable, and in some cases even more so, uh, as any man in a given profession. You know, some film scholars and critics have referred to Silence of the Lambs as one of the most feminist films of all time, and I would agree with that assessment. Very much so. I would agree with that too. Um, before we go, Ryan, uh, tell the listeners out there again where we can find you and anything else you want to plug. Sure. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at RLTerry1. You can uh, follow my blog at RLTerryRealView.com. I would love to include you in my conversations and hashtag film Twitter. Uh, I love making uh, uh, new connections, making new friends uh, who love talking about film as much as I do. And I love learning from other people. And that's one thing I do with all the podcasts that I listen to is I, I'm learning something new all the time. And uh, when I learn something new, I love to share it. And so if you want to join in the conversation, please you know, follow me at RLTerry1 on Twitter. And I'm going to enjoy uh, incorporating you into um, you know, those uh, with whom I'm able to you know, talk with and, uh, again, enjoy learning from. And that is, and if you're not keeping up with Women in Horror Month, definitely do it. There's a lot of content out there. Uh, you can uh, find the Women in Horror Month content um, on Promote Horrors Twitter feed, on all the Horrors Twitter feed, and uh, all there you'll find all the links to the Women in Horror Month uh, content that's out there. It's um, uh, mostly podcasts. Uh, I, I'm one of the, the few, uh, you know, if I, I might even be the only blogger, uh, who's, who's in it. Cause you know, I find my strength is more in writing than my, uh, than my, uh, my, my conversation skills. Uh, so that, um, so I'm glad that I get to be a part of it. Uh, definitely connect with me. I love, uh, the pleasure of making your acquaintance. Well, thank you very much. And I definitely will tip that out. Uh, I would definitely have your acquaintance there, especially for Women in Horror Month. And you, sir have got really good conversation <laughs> skills. In fact, if you started a podcast, I would be glad to help edit that right now because you actually have very strong conversational skills, more than I do, all right? You have been a very great, very great guest, and I would definitely be proud and happy if you did have your own show. Whenever you decide to do that, no pressure at all. Um, as for us at the Cinema Recall Podcast, we are on Twitter. Just search for at cinema underscore recall. Um, email us, cinemarecall at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook. Anyways, I'm Vern. Big shout out to my guest, uh, Ryan Terry. Uh, definitely check out his other works there. He has a huge range of movie reviews, everything from new releases uh, to cult horror films theme parts, everything. Uh, but anyways, folks, I'm going to jet right now, and I hope you all have a great day. Alright, goodbye.